All right, good morning, church. Good to see you all. We're going to study God's word. I hope you have one of these with you. Open it up to the book of Genesis. Doesn't get any easier. Just turn to the very first page of the Bible. All right, starting a new series in Genesis, and we're going to walk through the first 11 chapters of Genesis headed up toward uh, right around Palm Sunday. So we'll be in this for several weeks. I have a mixture of, of excitement as well as, honestly, just some fear and trepidation. It, you know, I've been reading Genesis uh, 1 for, for many years, but especially these last several weeks, I've been diving into it and just feel um, an honest sense of who is adequate to get at the wonders that are in this text. I mean, we are standing on holy ground. It, the whole Bible gives us the knowledge of God and Genesis lays the very first brick. All the patterns that are discovered later on in scripture are set in place and set in motion in Genesis chapter one. So there's just so much. And in case I wasn't uh, nervous enough, celebrated Old Testament scholar, Derek Kidner, I read him this week and this was his opening words of his commentary. A music critic once demolished a certain descant to a great hymn tune with the remark that it impoverished its companion like a mini round a Rolls Royce. Any treatment on Genesis is bound to invite similar comparisons. What is almost equally unavoidable is the offense which any writer or preacher or teacher on this subject is likely to give to many of his readers at one point or another in discussing the immense issues that are raised by Genesis at every turn. There can scarcely be another part of scripture over which so many battles, theological, scientific, historical, and literary have been fought or so many strong opinions cherished. This very fact is a sign of the greatness and power of the book and of the narrow limits of both our factual knowledge and our spiritual Grasp. So that is, those are humbling words from someone who lived um, to understand and help the church understand the book of Genesis. It is an amazing book. And the effect that I'm praying for, for us as a church, for my own soul and for us all as a church, uh, is I think captured by something I remembered this week, a story that my mom told me many years ago. And she talked about her dad, my papa, who's now with the Lord. And she said, you know, um, he, he always wanted to travel and see the Grand Canyon and he was throughout his life and was never able to get there. And then late in his life, my mom took him to the Grand Canyon and she said, you should have seen your papa. He walked out on the edge, this viewing area and she said he just stood there with this kind of silent awe and reverence and she said he stood there in silence and then she said he just started to sing. And he sang the words we were singing a moment ago, oh Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. He had this big, deep, baritone voice, old school, heavy vibrato. And she said he was just singing it out over the Grand Canyon. Uh, if we spend a few weeks in Genesis 1 and 2, and we will, just in these first couple chapters, if we spend a few weeks in Genesis 1 and 2 and something like that doesn't happen, we're doing it wrong. This text is not meant to scratch the itch of every curiosity we might bring to the text. This text is here to get you 
singing, to get you worshiping the God who made it all. Here's the text, Genesis 1, follow along. Just the first two verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths and the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. So many of the most foundational truths of the Christian faith are right here on the very first page of the Bible, here in Genesis chapter one. So I'm a big believer in catechism. It wasn't reared in this. I kind of thought catechism is only what other traditions do, Roman Catholics, for example, but not something that Protestants do. But then I grew up and I read some of the Protestant catechisms and I thought, this is awesome. This helps me understand the Bible. It, it asks a simple question and it gives a simple and memorable answer that is really anchored in the clear teaching of scripture so that children can understand and be formed in the faith of, of the word of God. And so when I stumbled onto some of these catechisms, Paula and I just said, hey, let's just do this. As family worship each night, let's read some section of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Let's set these, uh, these sayings to music and let's sing it at bedtime before we do our prayers and read a brief passage of scripture. Well, one of the early catechisms was then even made more accessible to children. And I love where it begins because this this children's catechism, what it does is it takes these formative truths of the faith and it allows children to form the very words of the faith even when they can barely speak the language. And notice where the catechism begins. Three questions. Who made you? God. What else did God make? God made all things. Why did God make you and all things for his glory? That's not getting you all the way to the end of the Bible, but we've made massive progress. We've got a a huge foundation under us of the great God who made us and everything for his glory. The, the, The catechism, the Westminster Catechism would famously ask, what is the chief end of man? The chief end or man's primary purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Those truths shape us not only as children, they shape us all the way through the whole of our lives as disciples and followers of Jesus Christ. And Genesis 1, I would submit to you here at the outset of the series, is the beginning of the story that God is writing. And we notice, for our purposes this morning, we notice two things. It's a story about, number one, history. It's a story about history. So just think with me about this huge chunk of history that is covered by the book of Genesis. So scope, for example, we learn about primeval history in Genesis 1 through 12. And we learn about patriarchal history from Genesis 12 through 50. So what do those mean? Primeval history is is just the history of planet Earth, the origins of everything. 
And we learn about that in chapter one through chapter 11. And then patriarchal history covers the events in the life of Israel's founding fathers. Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. So you, you follow the life, the early calling of God in, in Abraham's life, and then Abraham's son Isaac, Isaac's son Jacob, Jacob's son Joseph, and then you close the book of Genesis. You've walked through this massive period of history. And all the way through, even really from the outset, from the first three chapters, there are these recurring themes and patterns that lock into place in the first three chapters, and they're played on repeat throughout the entire book of Genesis. And it goes something like this. So the themes is it's a story about God, the good creation, the bad decision, and the grace that intervenes. And really, even after the fall, it's story after story after story that follows that exact same pattern. You could almost summarize the book of Genesis in all these stories that it tells with words that might be familiar to you if you've read the New Testament book of Romans, Romans chapter five, verse 20, which says, where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. And in that way, once we see Adam and Eve rebel against God, we see sin multiplying. But we also see, you just keep flipping the pages, and we also see the tenacious God who will not give up the story. He will not give up the promise that he made. Friend, think about where you're at right now this morning. Let me just say to you, if you need to start again, Genesis is your book. This is what we see in the very opening verses of this book is the spirit hovering over darkness, a trackless waste of chaos. And he says, let there be light. And there was light. It is a powerful story. Matter of fact, Paul would apply it in other ways. He would say, the same God who spoke and said, let light shine out of darkness, shines forth in our hearts to give us the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you need to start again, what you need is the book of Genesis. You need a conversation with Genesis chapter one where you see God creating the ends of the earth by the power of his word and his spirit. The two great powers of God in the world today are the power of his word and his spirit. All the transformation experienced in the church and among followers of Jesus is the power of God in his word and in his spirit. So as we think about the story of history, it's important to consider a couple of things, the author and the audience. That's always true. No matter what book of the Bible we happen to be studying, it's important to understand something about the human author if we can, in fact, know anything about the human author. Sometimes it's anonymous. But if we can know something about the human author and something about the audience, it sheds light. So just think about human authorship of books of the Bible. Do you know who writes certain books of the Bible? And I'm just gonna give you a quick quiz on human authorship. I want you to answer out loud. We'll start easy, all right? It's not gonna be trick questions here. We're just gonna start easy and walk through. So answer out loud, who wrote the book of Jeremiah? Great, who wrote the book of Malachi? Who wrote Matthew? Who wrote Mark? Who wrote Luke? Who wrote John? Who wrote 1 Timothy? Ah, good job. Some of you saw it coming, right? 
So because Paul, when he writes his, his letters, he's often writing it and naming it after the one who's going to receive the letter. So Philemon's gonna receive it. Titus is gonna receive it. Timothy's gonna receive it twice. All right, so Paul's writing this in, in that way, but it's, just think about it. It's really helpful to know something about the author and something about the audience. You get yourself a good study Bible and you can find out more about the audience and the author. So very briefly, Let's talk about author and audience. Author, Moses wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. So it's, it doesn't mean that we should expect at the, at the end of the book of Genesis, it's gonna say, you know, signed Moses. Um, but there's internal evidence that Moses has written this entire collection of the first five books of the Bible. And one of the evidences of it is actually in the New Testament. When the New Testament quotes from the first five books of the law or from the Pentateuch, the New Testament will say things like, as was written in the law of Moses, or as it was written in the book of Moses, or it will just simply say, Moses said, and it will quote something from one of the first five books of the Old Testament. Jesus would when he arrives on the scene, would affirm Mosaic authorship of the first five books of the Bible. Matter of fact, he gets into a, a tift with the Pharisees, the religious teachers of the law. Uh, this, they majored in this. They had their PhDs in these five books in particular. And they said, um, so here's our read on things. We don't believe you, we believe Moses. And Jesus said, if you believe Moses, you would believe me because newsflash, Moses wrote about me. <laughs> he says, you, you search the scriptures and in that you do well, but you refuse to come to me. And everything that was written there in the scriptures and the law and the prophets was written about me. So it's right for us to look, as we walk through Genesis, it's right for us to look for Jesus. Jesus said, look for Jesus. Otherwise, we're reading the Bible like Pharisees. We're reading the Old Testament like Pharisees. So Jesus would affirm that Moses was the author. So it's helpful to know the author, it's helpful to know the audience. So who's the original audience? The Israelites who had been rescued from Egypt. So Moses is composing this and he's compiling this and we know it's the wilderness generation that had been uh, rescued from Egypt and it's the wilderness generation because Moses dies on Mount Nebo before they go into the promised land. So that's the generation of the original audience you ever, you ever been on a, a tour with a tour guide and one of the fellow tourists seems to know more than the tour guide? Right, so they keep interrupting and, and in essence taking the mic away from the tour guide and saying, no, talk about this. Or here's my insight into this, this thing, right? Well, here's our job. Uh, Moses is the tour guide. We are the tourists. Actually, there is an original set of tourists that we're eavesdropping on what they're hearing. And that original set of tourists is the Exodus generation wandering through the wilderness. So Genesis 1 is the first stop on the tour and we have one job. Don't steal the mic. Let Moses be the tour guide. Let him bring up the questions he wants to bring up for the audience uh, and for the issues that that audience most needs to hear. So think about, the, think about the audience with me. They've been in a government-sponsored re-education camp for 450 years in Egypt. They have not been reared in the catechism that I began with. They have been reared and steeped in the liturgies of the Nile. 
and the solar gods and the lunar gods. Matter of fact, so much so that when Moses is called by God to go and rescue the people and bring them out, Moses says, when I get there and they ask me what's the name of the God that sent me to rescue them, what do I tell them? In other words, that's Moses saying, who are you? And they're gonna wanna know. They're gonna wanna see a business card. Right, these people have been steeped in the pagan deities of Egypt. So when I tell them God sent me to rescue you, they're gonna say, be more specific, which God? And when they ask that question, what do I tell them? And he says, tell them I am sent you. Tell them Yahweh, the Lord, has sent you. That's how much they need to learn. That's the audience listening to Genesis chapter one. In the movie, um, Born Identity, Jason Bourne, the main character, uh, he comes into the movie, he's had a traumatic experience, he's floating in the water, uh, they, they pull him out of the water, they save his life, and then you realize he's got amnesia. He's in the car with a woman who's gracious enough to, to bring him somewhere so that he can try to figure out who he is and where he's from and all this stuff, right? To, and she starts peppering him with questions, is there a woman in your life? And you know, what's your favorite music? And his head is just about to explode because he doesn't even know his name. He doesn't, he doesn't know his family. He doesn't know where he's from. He doesn't know anything, right? So back to audience, this is the wilderness generation. They're not walking through the Sinai wilderness picking up bones and saying, is this a T-Rex? That, that is not their goal. They're not saying, okay, what we really need to know as we are out here hoping we get another meal, hoping that rock's gonna spring forth with water, we really need to know what's the age of the earth, right? That those aren't necessarily questions that are germane to that generation. They're not waking up really itching to know the things that sometimes we bring to the text. Important questions to be sure, but they're not the most important and central questions for the audience that received this message. They wanna know, God, who are you? They wanna know, God, why us? Why'd you just bury the Egyptian army back there underwater? Why'd we come through on dry ground? Where are you taking us? So now we know what you've done. Where are you bringing us? How can you turn, we saw you turn water into wilderness so that we could pass through on dry ground. How can you turn a wilderness into water? How can you turn this trackless waste of wilderness in all directions into a place that feels inhabitable, that feels like home? And to that, it's as if God said, I'm glad you asked. Moses, I need you to grab something to write with. Here's what you need to write. Now the earth was formless and empty Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths and the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light and there was light. And now we can imagine a little bit better considering the audience, how they would have heard this and how these words would have given them hope. Don't come to Genesis for controversy. Come to Genesis for clarity. Come to Genesis for theology. Come to Genesis and worship. Come and find your song in Genesis chapter one. G Genesis one, it, that's what it's there for to the original audience. It's there to fill them with courage. It's there to help them trust in the God who is bigger than all things. It's there to arm them with God's purpose. It's there to give them their song back. We need to hear the story of history, we need to hear the true story of God. 
the true story of God. Genesis tells us who God is. In the beginning, the very first words announce who God is. In the beginning, God, what? Created the heavens and the earth. It's, it's a merism, it's a literary device that you would use when you wanna describe everything by describing the things at the polar extremes. So for example, you see me when I lie down and when I rise up. It means you see me at all times. There's no time of the day that you don't see me because you see me in my lying down and in my rising up. Or as far as the east is from the west, that's how far you've removed our transgressions from us. It's a merism, it's a literary device. And in the same way, the very first verse of the Bible is saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It means he created everything. Everything that there is was made by God. He doesn't have jurisdiction over the earth or jurisdiction over the skies or jurisdiction over the sea. He is sovereign over it all. The creator of the ends of the earth. I wanna wrap up our study this morning with five glorious truths about God that fuel our worship and make Christians immovable. Number one, before there was anything, there was God. Before there was anything, there was God. God is distinct from his creation. Creation is not one with God. It is not pantheism or panentheism. It is not God molded into creation. It is not that, that creation emanates from God as the rays of the sun emanate from the sun. No, God is distinct. God chose sovereignly out of his own volition to create the world. He didn't need the world. He chose to create the world and the world is distinct from him. So there are, in the Christian worldview, biblical worldview, there are two circles there is a circle and you could write the word God in it and there is a circle under that circle and you could write everything else. Angels, demons, trees, people, molecules, galaxies, planets, everything's in that other circle and God alone is in his circle. He's distinct from creation. He is not dependent on creation for anything no, creation is dependent on him for everything. So the line between those two circles goes in one direction. It goes from God's circle down to creation's circle. It's not arrows on both sides, God receiving something from creation and giving something to creation. What's all this mean? What's it have to do with the Israelite generation, the original tourists? The Israelites need to know the real story. And the real story is Egypt's gods are not gods. They're powerless. God is the creator of the ends of the earth. Psalm 96, five, all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. You see the contrast. God made everything and the idols of the peoples are worthless. Genesis one, our text, would have explained to the people of Israel it would have explained the Exodus. It would have explained the 10 plagues. In other words, it's God's way of saying, let me get you a retrospective of what just happened. The reason that all the gods of Egypt just folded like a napkin is because I'm enthroned over everything. I don't have any rivals. You have nothing to fear except me. I am over all things. He speaks and creation comes into being by faith 
Hebrews 11, three. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. Ex nihilo, out of nothing, by divine speech, let there be, and it reports for duty. Light reports for duty, yes sir. Days report for duty, right? Everything shows up the moment he speaks. Before there was anything, there was God. Second, God is a trinity. So the doctrine of the trinity, and I'm here quoting from the old Westminster Catechism that we used to sing at night, three persons are in the one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three are one God, the same in substance and equal in power and glory. God is a trinity. He didn't become a trinity. He has always been and only been the triune God. In Genesis chapter one, verse two, what do we read? We read that here's God and then here's the spirit of God. So the Holy Spirit is hovering over the surface of the deep, hovering over the primordial waters at the moment of creation. So this is pointing to the Spirit's involvement, the third person of the Trinity's involvement in the process of making the earth and filling it with life. So there's the Spirit of God at work hovering over the mass of pre-creation. And then you come over into John chapter one and it's, it quotes, it's referencing, hearkening back to the very opening words of the Bible where he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And, and later on you keep reading in John and it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the word in John chapter one, verse one to three is Jesus. And so John chapter one says, in the beginning, guess who was there? The father and the son. And the son was with the father. He was not the father, but he was with the father, one God. And everything was created by him. And apart from him was not anything made that was made. God is Trinity. Third, Jesus was with God in the beginning. There again, I've already tipped my, my hand in that direction. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word is Jesus, the word becomes flesh and dwells among us. But, but notice, not just in John, but you keep reading in the New Testament, the apostle Paul gives us eyes, gives us lenses to read Genesis 1 in light of the fuller progressive revelation of the New Testament. The apostle Paul said this, for by him, he's talking about Jesus Christ, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This whole universe, every molecule in the universe is being upheld by the power of the eternal Son of God. If he doesn't sustain it, it stops existing. He didn't just create it, he sustains the entire universe by the word of his power. He sustains you right where you're sitting, right now, you breathe out, you breathe in, you breathe out at his beck and call. He is granting you breath right now. Scripture says, in him we live and move and have our being, which means what? You can't have life without Jesus. 
He is life. He is light. He is joy. He is comfort. So many people in our culture, they want life, but they don't want lordship. The hard reality is you can't have life without lordship. And the best kept secret of Christianity that needs to not be a secret anymore, the best kept secret is when you taste and see that the Lord is good, you want him to be the Lord of your life. You don't want to run your life anymore. You've tasted and seen lordship is good. The Lord himself is good. Next, God made the world to reveal his glory and his goodness. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. The heavens still declare the glory of God. And everyone sees it. It says, day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. And nobody can hide from the knowledge that's getting out there that there is a God. Romans chapter one says, all the people who deny God, they know he's there. They know it. Everybody knows it. What they're doing is they're fighting really hard to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. But deep down, they know. They know he's there and he isn't silent. They know God made the world. Every person on planet Earth right now is either rejoicing in God through the knowledge of his son, Jesus Christ, or haunted by the holy and somehow aware that when everything comes to a close, we're gonna have to reckon with him. And finally, relevance. We need to know our God, our past, his promise, and our purpose. People of Israel wandering through the wilderness, they needed to know the story. They needed to know where did it all begin. The same is true for us. Where did it all begin? Who's writing the story? Is he good? What is the good news of the Christian faith? The good news of the Christian faith is not merely that God made the world and everything in it. Because if we keep reading in Genesis, we're gonna find out we made a mess of things, didn't we? We turned from the God who made us and everything. We rebelled against him and our relationship with him was broken. And now how are we gonna make it back? Because now we're sinful and he is a holy God. How are we ever gonna make it back? It's gotta be better news than just God made the world. And the better news is if we keep reading the Bible is that the God who made us and then the God who saw us fall is the very God who has pursued us all the way to the cross so that when we keep reading the Bible, we will eventually find that the very one who hung the galaxies hung between earth and heaven in our place to reconcile us to God. Now, now we got ourselves a gospel. That's good news for broken, sinful people like we are. If God has the kind of power to generate Genesis chapter one, to bring everything into being by the word of his power, then surely he can deliver you from your enemies. Surely he can save you from your sins and he can keep you, even you, to the very end. If he has world-creating power, 
power, then surely he has the ability to rule over the entire cosmos and your life all at the same time. And he has the power and ability in the end someday to heal you forever and to make you and everything in the world new. But friends, here in Genesis chapter one, verse two, we're not getting all the way there. Here in Genesis one, verse one and two, it's like God is giving Moses the first three questions of an ancient catechism. And you can hear the tents going up in the wilderness in all directions because we're making camp here tonight. And you can imagine the fathers in Israel saying to the children, who made you? God. What else did he make? God made all things. Why did God make you in all things? For his glory.